and we're off. <laughs> That's right. We are. We are off. Um, yep. All right. So what's going on? Drinking a, uh, a little espresso. A little espresso, huh? What did you get yourself? A little espresso machine? Uh, who do you think in this house would buy that? Me or my roommate? Definitely your roommate. <laughs> and yeah. is, is it an espresso? Yeah. And how many pods did he buy? Oh, um, what do you mean? Like the little containers? Yeah, man. Oh, well, like, yeah, he bought hundreds. Of course he did. <laughs> Dude, and he drank probably, he's been like drinking like five or six of these a day, so he's definitely, he's gonna, Good. his heart's going to give out soon. He'll be fine. <laughs> yep. Yeah, he's, so. he's going to be just fine. I'm drinking a uh, lemon lime Waterloo, yep. which I contend, I think it tastes, lemon lime Waterloo tastes like unsweetened Mountain Dew. Okay. Yeah, I haven't tried it yet. I do want to. It's, um, I, I don't say that as a bad thing. And I'm not, yeah. I don't like Mountain Dew. I'm not a big yeah. soda guy, but take away the sweetness of it. This, I, I yeah. swear, it tastes like unsweetened Mountain Dew. And I mean, I mean dude, even the coloring, it's kind of like yeah. that slime green yeah. color. I, I'm, I'm completely sold. Yeah, I mean, dude, I don't know how Waterloo gets those flavors. They have like the most flavorful. Yeah. I am, uh, I do also, actually, I just finished it. It's a polar tropical cherry, so mm. I like this flavor. I think the I think the seasonals um, suck, mm. <laughs> the ones for the summer, but this one's good. I haven't tried it yet. Yeah, it's pretty good. I'll have to I'll have to give it a shot. Yeah, give it a whirl. Give it a whirl. Yep. Um, what else? What else is new? Anything new? Is there anything new? Um, let's see. Well, yeah, uh, as I told you, I've been uh been watching those uh, that recent. Planet of the Apes trilogy. Oh yeah, um, it's got the kind of stupid one with James Franco. The second one's pretty decent. Yeah. Um, I don't think they're anywhere near as good. They all have like, or at least the second two, are have like ninety plus percent um, positive reviews. Yeah, you know, the second one was okay. It was a little yeah. bit better than the first. Totally watchable, uh, just for like you know garbage cinema. And you haven't seen the third one yet? I have not yet. No. Yeah, I don't no. remember if I saw the second one, but I remember seeing the one with James Franco. Yeah. Like He's it was, not in second. Yeah. I don't yeah, mind sure. James Franco. Yeah. I like yeah, I mean, him. I think he's kind of like a weird douche, but he's pretty funny. Yeah. Well, that <laughs> pretty much describes, like, every friendship I have, so... I think that I'm fine with that vibe. Yeah. Um, I mean, I include myself in that. Yeah, for sure. What about you? Anything new? Nothing, man. Nothing. I was... I've, sort of started watching uh star trek the next generation again um, that's right yeah i do that periodically though like i'll watch a few episodes yeah. and be like this is great and then not really watch it for months but but you're also watching like season one which is like very which has a very like low budget sci-fi vibe to it you know what i mean yeah like a lot of those like sets like you could tell it's just like some studio in southern california did it so <laughs> does it not keep that vibe it does, you know, it's it's a little bit tamed down in later seasons. Yeah. Um, when they clearly got like more money. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are still like those rare episodes where they're on like a tropical planet, and like the ceiling, is like clearly not like a sky. It's just right. like a studio ceiling. Yeah. With just like a bunch of plants around. Um, but I mean, it still <laughs> it still keeps that like you know somewhat camp vibe to it. I mean, I love TNG. You know, I watched all of it. Um end of last year up to like january this year i pretty much went through it been trying to do ds9 season one of ds9 is not good yeah um but you know supposedly the second half of it is like incredible hmm. yeah i don't know like cool i yeah. guess all that's new with us is that we're watching things yeah i mean what what else is anybody doing right now
All right, well, hello, I guess, and welcome to episode 14 of Left Unread, um, yes, which is the show that we're doing right now. It's, 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 it's my show podcast. and Evan's show. It's our show. Yeah. So welcome. It's nobody else's. <laughs> <laughs> it's ours and it's no one else's. Um, yeah, so, uh, so today um, we are going to be doing a bit of a geographic jump. We've done a lot of American and European history, um, and we figured it was probably time that we zipped outside of that a little bit, so we are popping down to Africa, um, and today we're going to talk about one of the more interesting sort of mysterious quasi-legendary figures in African history. So this is, this is the episode about Mansa Musa. Yeah, um, which I believe I, we've mentioned at least once, maybe more. Yeah, in, uh, I, I briefly mentioned run. him in uh, part one of our Tiberius episodes mm-hmm. um, when we were talking about, like, richest people ever. Yeah. Um, so not to give too much away, but he's on the short list. Um, he's, <laughs> yeah. he's, he's one of those, you know, sort of ancient figures that is in contention for being the wealthiest person ever. Um, and so we'll kind of dive into that a little bit today. Mm-hmm. Uh, but before we do that, do we have uh, an ad spot? Did we get anything? Uh, yes, we did. Um, okay. And it's, uh, you know, speaking of wealth, it's uh, from the financial sector. <clears throat> so uh, today's episode is brought to you by Wesley Welliver Wellington's peer-to-peer gold standard cryptocurrency assurance guarantor. Interested in getting onto the blockchain but scared about high fluctuations in value? Well, while you wait in escrow, transfer that crypto to the gold blockchain and be confident that your cryptocurrency will stay at value for at least 36 hours. With interest rates as low as 35%, you can be assured that all those NFT purchases or Tesla vehicles won't depreciate in value, and not just because they have none. Living in Seminole County, Florida? Well, former tax collector Joel Greenberg has got you covered. Pay those pesky taxes you've been dodging since 2015 so Joel can make fake IDs for his underage friends using the (laughs) P2P gold standard system and know that that tyrannical U.S. government can't track you down. So sign up today and get one NFT of Elon Musk doing the meat spin free with your first (laughs) $20,000 transaction when you use the promo code LEFTUNRED20. (laughs) Oh, man. You guys would be so... Honestly, you guys would be so fucking stupid not to do it. It is... That's a sweet deal. Yep. That's... Wow. Oh, man. We're lucky. We're I got to say, yeah. honestly, too blessed to be stressed, man. We've got so many cool sponsors rolling in. Yeah. And I I'm I'm especially stoked about this one because, you know, if you know me, if there's one thing that I am personally uh <laughs> charged <laughs> up and excited about, it's cryptocurrency, man. I just, it's I those just, non-fungible tokens, baby. <laughs> I, I just, collect as many famous figures doing the meat spin <laughs> as I can. It's a, uh, it's like pogs, but you don't even get the real pogs. And I'm super. I'm here it's for it. It's pogs for your computer. <laughs> it's it's mind pogs. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, awesome. Thanks to them for that, um, and to you for um, just reading what they sent you to read. Yeah, that they sent me um, around 6.30 while I was setting up and realized that I hadn't checked my ad spots yet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, thanks, man. Cool. Um, so, as I said, today's subject is Musa I, who was Mansa of the Great Mali Empire of West Africa. Um, Mansa is a, a title, um, but he's often known as Mansa Musa, in especially in like Western literature. Um, so you'll hear me throughout refer to him mostly as Musa, um, but sometimes as Mansa Musa or some of his other little epithets. Um, so the reign of, of Musa is unquestionably one of the most monumental in human history. Um, if you haven't heard of him, you're not alone, but it is a real shame, which is why we're going to do the episode that we're doing today. Uh, I was, I was pretty bummed out. I, I don't remember the first time that I heard about Mansa Musa. Me neither. But I know that it wasn't in school. 
Like, yeah, all the sure. way up through getting my history degree in college. Like, I yeah. never had any idea who this person was. And I think that's, like, pretty wild. Um, yeah, yeah. I would be surprised if I heard about him before, like, seven or eight years ago. Yeah, seriously. I, I think I'm in the same boat. And it just sort of goes to show how de-emphasized non-European history is and non-American history yeah. is uh, in the American school system because – you know, here we have this uh, this complete African empire, right? That's not the result of colonialism. That's not, you know, the result of outside, too much outside influence or pressure. Um, and you, you have this sort of unbelievable figure of human achievement. And we just sort of gloss right over him. And, you know, yeah, I, I wonder why. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, we'll, we'll talk more about that. But um, so you're not alone if you've never heard of Mansa Musa. But today you're going to hear about him. Um, So, uh, as I said, Mansa Musa was the, the Mansa of the Mali Empire in West Africa, um, which was an empire that existed in that region from approximately 1235 to 1670 CE. Um, organized settlements in, in West Africa, and particularly the region that would come to be the Mali Empire, date back to at least 300 BC. So, this has been a, a, a quote-unquote civilized part of the world with um, non-nomadic sedentary, you know, habitation for a long time. Um, mm -hmm. Human populations, you know, we're talking like tribal nomadic populations have been there since about 10,000 BC. So one of the older populated regions in the world um, by modern humans. Um, the Mali Empire in particular was founded in 1235 CE by a man named Sundiata Keita. Um, and th there's some debate about whether that's like his name or his title. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not going to get too much into it today. I, I kind of want to do an episode later on Sundiata Keita um, because yeah. he's the subject of a really awesome, like, cultural epic poem that was passed down verbally and then eventually written down by the Arabs. Um, yeah. But that – the reason I didn't start with him today is because that epic poem is, like – it reminds me a lot of when we're talking about Jeffrey of Monmouth because yeah. there is history and he was a real guy. But there, it's totally interwoven with magic and fantasy, and all that stuff's really cool. But I don't want to like just only talk about you know the epic yeah, double mythology, <laughs> right? It, it felt like it would have been double dipping, so I'll probably wait yeah. to pop back to that until we're like past the Kings of Britain, whenever that is. But yeah. um, needless to say, it's it's worth looking into uh, the epic of Sundiata Keita, which is sometimes just called Sundiata Keita. Um, uh -huh. And there's all kinds of cool, like, magical instruments and battles and him just being, like, brilliant. A lot of a lot of African and particularly West African mythology, they don't just idolize, like, physical strength, but it's also important to be kind of a trickster and to be able mm -hmm. to sort of outsmart your opponents. Um, and in my mind, it sort of reminds me of Scandinavian mythology in that sense. Like, okay, yeah, it's, yeah, it's great that your hero can sort of kill a hundred men, but it's also cool if he can like tell riddles and stuff. <clears throat> so anyway, so this is the the founder of the Mali Empire. He was a, Madink a Mandinka prince uh, who through wits, might, uh, magic, and luck founded the Mali Empire when he was in his early 20s. Um, it's important to note that his family were Muslims. Uh, they could trace okay. their ancestry back to Bilal, who is one of the Muezzin, which are like the disciples and, and modern Muezzin are like people that call other Muslims to prayer. Um, but mm -hmm. so this was one of the disciples of the prophet Muhammad. So mm -hmm. it's not necessarily, it hasn't been proven that this family could actually trace their line back to the disciples of Muhammad, but yeah. it's sort of irrelevant because with a lot of these powerful families, like they were strong enough that nobody was really going to argue with them. And like, it may as well be true. Yeah. Uh, um, so by the time that Sundiata has has conquered and consolidated uh, his territory that would become the Empire of Mali, uh, West Africa is filled with cities and towns of varying sizes, varying degrees of splendor. Um, there are lots of Muslims, but there are also lots of Christians and then tons of different local variants of, you know, shamanistic um, or, or other types of local religion. Um, yeah. So it's by no means like a, a Muslim majority at this point. Um, 
but Sundiata and his family happen to be Muslims. And this is just south of the Sahara Desert. So this whole region yeah. was sort of missed by that Arab conquest of North Africa. So they've, they've gained the religion through trade and things like that, but it's not mm-hmm. necessarily like a part of what we now think of as the, um, the Muslim diaspora of that time. Yeah. Um, so he would retroactively be recognized as the first Mansa of the Keita dynasty, which is Mansa Musa's dynasty. Um, and in Mandinka, which is the, the language of the Malian Empire, the, the main language, there are, again, just like religions, there are tons of languages in this region. Um, but Mandinka is the, the, the primary language, uh, the lingua franca. Um, Mansa means something like a mix of king slash emperor and conqueror slash warlord. So it's sort of like an all-encompassing, like, big swinging dick title yeah he's he's the guy um and so that's just sort of a little backstory today we're going to be focusing on his great grand nephew oh which is hell yeah dude musa yeah yeah that's some nephew magic that, yeah it's, it all <laughs> comes back to uncles and nephews man it the, all the drivers of history dude. absolutely behind yep. every great nephew there's a good uncle a good uncle yeah <laughs> <laughs> um so uh right off the bat uh we're talking about Musa, and I, I, I sort of want to note, um, and again, this kind of reminds me of, you know, the disclaimers we've had to give for a lot of the older history that we talk about. Um, yeah. West African culture then, and even still today, has always really relied on the oral tradition to preserve and pass down not just history, but stories and songs and family trees mm-hmm. and everything. Um, and we tend to sort of lump the individuals who are responsible for that uh, passing on of knowledge as griots or griots. I think I'm pronouncing that right. It's a French word um, because of, you know, colonialism. But basically these are like historians, storytellers, poets, bards, all rolled into one. Um, And then eventually these, these verbal accounts of, you know, the early history of this region were passed on through trade and through later exposure to the Arab world to um, Arab historians who then committed this stuff to writing and created, you know, what we would consider like historical documents and, and sort of firsthand accounts, things like that. Yep. So what we're what we're working from is sort of a mix, especially with the older stuff like the first half of Musa's reign back through early Mali, is really all just oral history that's been sort of recited to later historians who would write things down. And it's not Mm -hmm. until his big uh, reveal, which we'll talk about momentarily, that true firsthand accounts of his reign sort of come into play. So um, Mm -hmm. as a result of that, we don't know a whole lot about Musa's early life, um, but here are just some little tidbits that I scraped together. So uh, Ibn Khaldun, who's a famed uh, Arab polymath historian, he made a comprehensive family tree of the Keita dynasty about 70 years after Musa's reign. Um, and so according to this family tree, Musa, uh, he succeeded a king called Abu Bakari Keita II. Um, it's not really clear how they were related, but we know that Abu Bakari Keita II was not anyone in his direct line. So it wasn't his dad. It wasn't his grandfather. Um, They might have been like cousins or he might have been another sort of removed uncle. Um, But the reason this is important is that the Keita dynasty did not inherit according to primogeniture, which means father did not bequeath unto son. Um, The kings would would elect their successor. Um, But theoretically, the one tying commonality here is that they could all trace their ancestry back to Sundiata Keita. Yeah, um, and uh, just to know, I will say that Abu Bakari, you know, you're talking about the Muslim origins, definitely sounds a lot like Abu Bakir. <laughs> it's the same, it, it's the same. Name. Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, it's like Joao <clears throat> and Juan, you know, it's, it's, it's yeah. the same name. It's just a different, uh, it's like a localization. Yeah, just uh, a And you'll see that yeah. if you look through their, their, um, I think Musa is is Moses. You know okay. what I mean? I think it's a corruption. Um, don't quote me on that. But a lot of their names are do have Muslim roots. Um, okay, yeah, yeah. And some of their titles do too. It's but it's it tends to be like localized transliterations of those names. Yeah. Um, so according to Ibn Khaldun, Musa was a great grandnephew of Sundiata Keita, that legendary founder. Um, yep. And then, as I said, neither his father or his grandfather served as king. Um, So the way that he came to power is basically 
Whenever Akeita ruler would embark on his Hajj, which was like the traditional Muslim pilgrimage to Mecca, um, or any other sort of long trip where they'd be away from the kingdom, they would appoint like a, a, a deputy or a sub-king to rule in their absence, which is smart. Um, generally, this was considered like a trial run, um, and the person that they appointed to do this, it was understood that they were sort of testing them to see if they were ready, and that person would usually be the person that they named as their successor. So okay. um, Musa's predecessor, Abu Bakari Keita, apparently he embarked on a sea voyage to try to find the limits of the Atlantic Ocean and just never returned. Um, so he had heard that it was possible to reach the, the end of the Atlantic Ocean. And so he yeah. had a big fleet built and spent a ton of money and loaded them with men and gold and weapons and sailed off into the ocean. And that's that. Um, there's obviously like there always are when things like this happen. There's a theory yeah. <laughs> that he like found the new world and that there was African contact in South America and things like that. Um, which is, which is cool. Um, that's a really fun thing to sort of think about or to, to yeah. sort of suppose. But unfortunately, there's not really any archaeological evidence to support that. Um, I noted in my notes here that like a similar thing happens when you talk about Zheng He, who's that famous Chinese uh, Ming Dynasty explorer who, yeah. who went on a massively long naval voyage um, and covered huge amounts of territory um, for the Ming Dynasty. And so there's all these thoughts that he reached, you know, um, Polynesia and that he was, you know, maybe the West Coast of the United States or, you know, whatever, the, the North American continent. Um, but again, there's not really any evidence to support that. It's just fun to think about. I think people love the idea of it not having yeah. been a white guy. And I totally understand that. Or a different white guy. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like the Vikings <laughs> or Columbus, like people, yeah. people, people obviously hope that there's like an alternate, you know, first non-American to reach America, but um, unfortunately yeah. we don't have a lot of evidence to support that. So when Abu Bakari Keita didn't return, Mansa takes the reins, and he officially becomes the the Mansa himself. Um, and so this is in approximately 1312 CE. Um, the early part of his reign is is relatively little attested. Um, this apparently is really just largely due to the outside world not having much contact with Mali at this point. Um, yep. The Arabs were aware of them because periodically these super wealthy like African kings from the West would just appear for Hajj and you know everybody would be like oh okay he's from Mali great wherever mm -hmm. that is and then they would leave and no one would really give it any thought um, at this point the Sahara Desert was still a pretty a pretty big geographical barrier for most people um, mm -hmm. and most cultures didn't have boats that were super well equipped for sailing outside of the Mediterranean so journeys on the Atlantic Ocean are, are few and far between. And um, yeah. unless you're talking about like, you know, the Vikings are doing it, you know, this is actually towards the tail end of the Viking age. Um, but there's not a huge amount of like exploration as we'll come to see it in the next centuries. Yeah. Um, so they're basically just cut off from the rest of the world. Europe has no idea that he exists. Um, the Arab world only vaguely has an understanding that there's these relatively powerful kings out there in the middle of the desert. Um, so it is known that he was um, a great military leader. Uh, in his youth, mm -hmm. he claims to have conquered like 20-plus city-states. Um, Africa at this time was kind of a lot like ancient Greece. So you'd have these cities that were their own political entities, and they would sort of have sway over the surrounding farmland and pasture land. And that was sort of it, you know. Um, mm -hmm. You started to get these sort of, you know, empires that would crop up. Um, and at this point, the Songhai Empire is the sort of equivalent of that. But they don't really have the lasting power or the geographical size uh, that we would consider an empire in, like, Asian or European terms. Um, yeah, yeah. So 
he's he's doing a lot to sort of change that perception. He conquers twenty plus cities, really expands um, the borders of his of his empire. Uh, during the reign of his forebearers, Mali had supplanted the Ghana Empire. <coughs> I just I just said the Songhai Empire, but that's what I meant was the Ghana Empire. Um, <laughs> So the Ghana Empire, who are the dominant West African power. And at this point, when he succeeds to the throne, uh, the Mali Empire includes parts of modern Guinea, Senegal, Burkina Faso, Nigeria, Niger, Chad, Mauritania, Gambia, and then obviously modern Mali. Um, so this is a pretty big landmass, and especially when we're talking about African empires at this time. Um, Notably, this area includes tons of active mines. So Musa has access to huge mineral wealth. He's got copper mines, salt mines, and then the big one, gold mines. Uh, This place is a gold mine, baby. (laughs) So so Musa's got gold. Um, And then also, unfortunately, I know it's sad, but... I guess we can't really shame them because they were probably much more sustainable than we are now, but uh, they made a lot of money by selling elephant ivory. So. Yeah, it's not like that uh, loser from uh, the NRA. Right. Yeah, or it's not It's not like hearing like that, that Donald Trump's kids are going over and shooting an elephant with like a high-powered <laughs> rifle. At least back then, if you were going to kill an elephant, you had to like, I mean, you had to go and fucking kill an elephant. You know? Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, yeah, not like that was that that recently came out about that douchebag NRA dude. I don't even remember his name, who like couldn't even like kill the elephant on like a hunt specifically made for like old decrepit losers like him, and just like kept blasting it and like missing, Aww. and the guy finally had to put it down. That sucks. And he's like, yeah, one of those NRA freaks, like the guy who like one yeah. of, like top guys there. Ugh. I mean, the idea of killing an elephant now makes me so sad. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's death penalty. It's, yeah. <laughs> like, if you do yeah. it, like... It's not okay. That and whales. You really ought to just leave those big, big suckers alone. Really? Any animal that you're not going to directly... Yeah, if it's not, reason. if it's, if it's not for... Yeah. Oh, yeah, sport killing is so stupid. Sport I'm killing sorry. is so stupid. Um, but anyway, all this to say that <laughs> Mansa Musa made a lot of money sport killing. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> so he's, he's super rich. Um, and so when he really comes into like what I would say like a more slightly more reputable historical picture, um, is in 1324 when Musa decides that it's time for Hajj. And as I said before, Hajj was and is the uh, pilgrimage that all devout Muslims are supposed to take if they're able to, at least once in their life, to the city of Mecca in the Arabian Peninsula. Um, And as I mentioned, uh, while not all of his subjects were Muslims, and this wasn't like a dominantly Muslim area, Musa and his dynasty were, and they were very devout. They took it really seriously. A lot of their names, as we've mentioned, are derived mm-hmm. from Muslim names. Um, and so he decides that it's time to go to Hajj. Um, so a pilgrimage from, from Musa's capital city of Niani to Mecca, which is on the Arabian Peninsula, would have spanned a God. distance of like 2,700 miles, which is a huge distance when you're just traveling by like horseback and most of mostly just walking. And most of this is going to be through uh, desert. Yeah, a lot of desert. Yeah. So you go from it's, jungles right to desert. Yeah, yeah. So where where to give you guys an idea, so I've mentioned that the Mali Empire is like sort of on the border between the Sahara Desert and Sub-Saharan Africa. So a lot of his territory is some combination of desert, savanna, and then sort of like hills and forests. There's there's a little bit of rainforest in the south, but he's not living in like tropical Africa. This is like yeah. uh, coastal and savanna Africa. So it's very rich. It's it's fertile. Um, there are major rivers there, but it's he is not. Uh, it's like it's it's very much like a border territory. So we're not talking yeah. about like you know dense jungles here. He's living mm-hmm. in like a pretty pretty temperate part of the world. Um, and so Niani, which is in the south, sort of in this coastal zone to Mecca, as I said, is like 2,700 miles. And not only do you have to contend with the Sahara Desert, but, I mean, the whole region is filled with with nomads and bandits who will just take your shit because yeah. that's how they live. They live a really hard life, and if you walk through their home and you're not as tough as they are, they're going to take your stuff and leave you in the desert. So... Traveling through that with a ton of gold and stuff, uh, you have to have like a pretty pretty serious set of brass hangers on you, um, or yeah. just be filthy stinking rich enough to like not have to worry about it. So, yeah. um, just to put that in perspective, we're talking about like 
a pretty powerful man who's not afraid of basically anything that this massive trip is going to throw at him. Um, so before he leaves, he appoints his son Maga Keita as his deputy and therefore like probably his heir, uh, and his greatest general Sagmandia to maintain peace and stability in his absence. Um, remember Sagmandia because we're going to talk about him for a second later. Nice. Um, the first major city that he would have passed through, so basically their trip would have taken them, they would have headed straight north to try to cross the Sahara as quick as possible, and then traveled along the coast of the Mediterranean on North Africa to the Sinai Peninsula, then down the coast again to Mecca. Um, so the first like major city on their route that they would have passed through is Cairo, which at the time was one of the global capitals of trade and of knowledge and of basically just everything. Cairo was just sort of a magical city. Um, yeah. And so his grand entrance into Cairo is sort of the first uh, first-hand picture that we have of Musa and his splendor. And this is sort of what puts him on the map <laughs> to the rest of the world. Um, yeah. So it's said that when he entered the city of Cairo, Musa's personal retinue consisted of some 60,000 people. Um, this included soldiers, baggage porters, slaves, uh, servants for himself and his wife, who we don't really know anything about because, you know, why would we? Uh, and all numbers of, of pack animals pulling carts, carrying things. So included in this are 80 camels, uh, which Hell are yeah, just dude. just for carrying gold. So each of these camels is carrying 300 pounds of gold nuggets and gold dust on their back. Um, 12,000 <laughs> 12, of the people in his retinue are slaves, um, and his slaves are all dressed in Persian silk, which is, like, insane to have exported across the desert to Africa. Um, mm -hmm. 500 of these slaves marched in directly in front of Musa, um, who was riding, like, a pure uh, thoroughbred black Arabian horse. Uh, he's, he himself is adorned in silks and gold from head to toe, gold skull cap, gold necklaces, gold jewelry. Um, and all of these 500 <laughs> slaves are carrying a staff made of five pounds of solid gold. Um, just to just just to be like, yo, like, buckle up. Yeah. A real one's on his way. Um, and so one of the fun little quotes that I found is that people that saw him said that he put the African sun to shame. Um, <laughs> he shone so brightly that, that he made the sun look dim. Um, so Cairo, which at this point is, is a city of approximately 100 million people. I'm sorry, 1 million people. Um, not 100 million. That would be... That'd be yeah. a huge city. But uh, Cairo is a city <laughs> yeah. of approximately a million people, and this is in 1324. Um, and at the time, it's ruled by al-Malik al-Nasir, um, who is one of the greatest of the Mamluk sultans. Um, the Mamluk uh, sultanate is, is the ruling Arab Muslim majority in Egypt at this point in history. Yeah. Um, and he himself is an immensely wealthy and powerful man in his own right. Um, as I've said, Cairo is like a center for trade and industry. It, it, it's the biggest gold trading post uh, on the Mediterranean, um, at least in North Africa, but, but probably in the whole region at this point. Um, and so again, that'll kind of come into play in a second. So the Sultan's court are obviously awed by the majesty of Musa um, because he's got just so much gold and he looks like he's a real big deal. Um, but yeah. also they're really impressed with how dignified he and all of the people with him are. Um, I think <laughs> the, way that, the way that they keep describing this, like when these Arab writers are writing about it, it, it reminds me of like when you hear someone say, like, oh, like he's so well-spoken or, oh, you're so <laughs> well-mannered. And it's like, you sort of there's like a two, double uh, double handed compliment or backhanded compliment yeah, there, yeah, yeah. you know, where it's like, oh, this like savage from the African desert, like wow, they're so dignified, and the, it's like yeah, we're talking about like a highly civilized and cultured people who are just like gracing you with their presence for the briefest of moments for the purpose of performing Hajj, and then they'll go yeah. back to their awesome place where they're from. Yep. Um, so. Anyway, so the sultan's, the sultan's court are awed by his dignity um, and the clear religiosity of his intent and being there. He's, he's apparently, like, very focused on this as, like, a, a spiritual journey. Um, yeah. So they're not, like, carousing and doing all kinds of crazy things. It's, it's, it's a very focused, very calm procession. It would have been an unthinkable affront, however, uh, despite his clear greatness, if Musa did not visit and have an audience with the sultan in his own city. And the reason this is important is because for whatever reason, Musa was reluctant to do that. He didn't want to go meet the sultan. 
Um, and there are differing accounts of it. Some which are kind of like more pro Musa are like, well, you know, he thought that it would be a distraction from the Hajj. He wasn't there to like rub shoulders with dignitaries. He was there to make his way to Mecca and he didn't want to be distracted. But then there's other people that are saying, you know, Musa felt that he was the superior to the Sultan and to have had to bow before him, you know, in his palace would have been an affront to his own dignity. Um, yeah. He insisted on being treated as a king of, of at least equal standing. Um, there's no real way to know which one is true. It could have been both, could have been neither. Um, but he was eventually persuaded to go and see the sultan. And so, again, the, the Arab writers that talk about this remark on how uh, dignified it was that he was uh, gracious enough to uh, bow before the sultan and, and thank him for his hospitality and things like that. His stay in Cairo is marked by an insane level of generosity. He's basically got his people just passing out gold left and right. Um, Hell yeah. Not just like paying for things or like buying food or staying in inns, but also just walking around and giving gold to every poor person they pass throughout the entirety of their journey. Um, because I mean, this is a this is a holy pilgrimage, and you know it is expected of all good Muslims to give to the poor what they can, and he yeah, had a lot give to give. Alms, so, yeah. so he's basically just flooding the, the area. Pillars. What'd you say? It's one of the five pillars. It is. Yeah. So it's it's he's not just. Uh, giving off like an ostentatious display he's also performing you know his religious duty um and trying to be a good muslim but uh modern historians sort of look at this and they say that like yeah obviously there was like religious intent but it it feels like a pretty obvious goal of musa's in making this such an outrageous display of wealth um that he that he was looking to advertise the kingdom of mali um as big boy in the sultan (laughs) yeah he is so he's coming in and he's saying like yeah no like i know everybody knows cairo but check this out uh i've got so much gold that even the people in cairo are shitting their pants so maybe you should come trade with us because mali's pretty great um the historian Al-Umari, who is another Arab famous historian, would visit Cairo 12 years after Musa's visit, and he would find that so much Malian gold had flooded the Cairo market that even <laughs> after more than a decade, the economic ripples are still being felt. The price of gold had still dropped so low that the inflation that was caused by this one visit uh, were still that being rolls. felt more than a decade later. So he single-handedly caused inflation on like uh, what at the time would have felt like a global scale. And so apparently this is the first time uh, ever in history that one man directly affected the price of gold in the Mediterranean region. That rules. Yeah, it, it does <laughs> rule. I mean, he came in and he dropped so much gold that he destroyed the economy. Yeah. <laughs> yes, successfully he went, big time. He went yeah. into the world's most most powerful gold trading port and destroyed the gold economy with his yeah. own personal wealth. So yeah, uh, he ends up making his trip to Mecca. He leaves Cairo. Surprisingly little is readily available about this. Um, apparently it was like pretty uneventful, but he went to Mecca. He spent some time there. He met lots of clerics and lots of important people. Some of them would join his caravan and decide to come back and see like, where the hell is this guy from that he can just like waltz into Mecca. And we're like hearing that you ruined the Cairo economy by being so rich. Like, who are you? And so people are like really being like completely bought and sold by this Mansa Musa guy. And so a bunch of people decide they're going to like head back with him and see what's going on in Mali. Um, And so again, this is like thought to have been a calculated move on his way back. They say that he passed back through Cairo and saw, this is probably like a few months later. He saw the effects that his uh, gold expenditure were having on the region. And he took out a massive loan of like most or some most or, or, or a huge chunk of the gold that he had spent, he took it back as loans with interest. Um, And so people either say that this was like because he didn't know he was going to cause such inflation and he wanted to help fix it, like, or uh, he could like just show like, yeah, see, like I can basically manipulate the gold market single-handedly, just come trade with me. Um, Either way, that's the effect that it ended up having because people saw this and were just like, my God, like, so you just showed up, flooded the market with gold, and then just bought back all the gold with, like, promise of more gold. Like, who is this fucking guy? Like, who, who's got this much money? Um, 
all right, like, I guess we're trading with Molly now. So either way, uh, it still doesn't resolve the full issue, like I said, of inflation in Cairo, but he takes this huge loan, goes back, pays back the loan with interest. So the Hajj of Mansa Musa is over, and he's just immediately like a rock star. Um, Ripples of what he's done make it as far as Europe. And they start talking about this, like, legendary African king, Mansa Musa, like, the golden king and all these things. Um, And he's almost like a legendary figure because nobody can can imagine that someone could ever be this wealthy, you know? No no one had ever had, like, the ostentation, the audacity to display their wealth in such a way. Um, so now we're going to just talk about like his post Hodge reign, which we actually know more about because, like I said, now eyes now all eyes are sort of on on Mansa Musa. People are aware of him. He brought a bunch of scholars back with him. People start making trips to Mali to see, like, all right, like oh, if yeah. his what a gong, yeah, hell yeah. It's <laughs> like if he if he travels in that much style, like where does that dude live? Like what yeah. does it look what does it look like where a guy like that comes from? Um, and so uh, at this point, Mansa's empire is one of the largest on earth. Um, it's substantially larger than the Holy Roman Empire. Um, we tend well, to look yeah. at modern atlases and. Pussy ass empire. What is it? Yeah, it sucks. Pussy ass empire. The it is. Um, <laughs> but you know how, like, when you look at, at an atlas now, everything's distorted yeah. and everything's, like, really clearly, like, Eurocentric. And so yeah. they make Europe look really big in relation to Africa. But if you actually look at, like, the planet Earth, the African continent is so it's vastly massive. massive compared to anything else that to look at, like, his empire is, like, almost as big as the entirety of, like, Western Europe. Like, it's it's yeah. huge. And the only really, the only empire that really rivals it is the Yuan Dynasty, which is, like, a splintered faction of Genghis Khan's empire um, mm-hmm. over in China. And other than that, like... There's no one else that can, like, hold a candle to how massive and powerful this empire is. And, again, you've never heard of this guy probably, which is, like, Mm. a real shame. Um, So part of why his empire is now so big is that while he was away, that general Sagmandia, who I had mentioned he left in charge, had been real busy. So he took it upon himself to capture the large and wealthy Songhai kingdom, um, which was uh, a a, a conglomeration of a few powerful city-states. and so now Molly's huge. Um, <laughs> Dude, that's awesome. Yeah. Just like while, just like while in charge, yeah, he's he like, was all right, just I'll bored. conquer in his name. He's like, all right, well, business <laughs> doesn't stop, okay? here. <laughs> just because the boss is away doesn't mean that uh, we're just going to be kicking our feet up, guys. So yeah. let's get going. You can lean, you can clean. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Teamwork makes the dream work, boys, okay? So let's uh, let's get conquering. Um, yep. So he comes back, and he's pleased to find that uh, Sagmandia has conquered Songhai. Um, Songhai had been, like, partly under Malian control before, but they were really rebellious and just constantly causing problems. So yeah. I think as, like, a gift to his Mansa, uh, Sagmandia was like, I'm going to just put this rebellion down for good, and he yeah. super decisively conquered them. Um, and the big two cities in Songhai were uh, Goa, or or I'm sorry, Gao, Goa is in yep. India, Gao, and Timbuktu. Um, the, never heard uh, of them. What'd you say? <laughs> never heard of them. You've never heard of Timbuktu? <laughs> um, everybody's heard of Timbuktu, and yep. I'll tell you why in a second, but um, modern Timbuktu is still there, but it's nothing like old Timbuktu. Um so he gets there, and uh, just to give you perspective, Ibn Battuta, who's like another famous Arab scholar that you should know about if you're going to get into history, because he was absolutely keeping the discipline alive while Europe was just like smoldering in like decrepit ruins. Um, yeah. He traveled to Mali like as one of these people that was like, who the fuck is this Mansa Musa guy? I have to go see this place. Yeah. And he said that it took him four months to travel from the southern border of Mali to the northern border of Mali. Jesus. So oh my God. it's big. It's really yeah. big. Um, and so in the south is his capital, Niani. And now in the north, he has these sort of joint new capitals of uh, Gaul and Timbuktu. Um, so yep. he's stoked. He stops and visits both of these cities. He takes the sons of the king of Songhai <laughs> as hostages, but he treats yeah. them like his own sons, and he raises them in his court. Um, but, you know, he's like, listen, no more rebellions because I'll take care of these kids. 
but I'll kill them. <laughs> like, yeah. So, um, and also on the way back, he has one of the one of the people that joined his caravan in Mecca is this guy named Abu Ishaq Al Sahili, who's a poet from Grenada, which is in Spain. But you know, as we hopefully know, Spain at this point was uh, largely Muslim. Um, and he commissions him to build mosques in both Gao and Timbuktu. Um, yep. The Gao Mosque is one of the first uh, baked brick buildings in West Africa. And the Sankore Mosque in Timbuktu is actually still standing, and you can look at it. And it's hard to describe, but it really showcases the classic Malian-era uh, earthen architecture that you see mm. in a lot of these cities. Um, it's really unique. It's it's really kind of beautiful. Um and this is one of the most famous uh, mosques on planet Earth, and it's still standing. Um, so during his reign, or at least the second half of his reign, it's a common saying about Musa that he built a mosque every Friday of his reign after his Hajj. Um, he, <laughs> he commissioned a huge number of mosques and madrasas, uh, madrasas being like centers of Islamic learning. Um, the mm -hmm. big ones you could sort of call a university, um, but yep. the small ones are sort of just like a little local school where they, they – study the Quran and teach, you know, the laws of Islam. And this is widely accredited as being, you know, why uh, Islam spread so much in the region. In the region. Yep. Uh, he also massively just, like, improved the infrastructure in Gao and Timbuktu. Um, they sort of become the cultural and economic uh, centers and the religious centers of, of the region. Um, his capital is still in the south in Niani, but Timbuktu sort of becomes, like, a pseudo-capital. Um, he built himself a legendary palace, which people have been trying to find forever, but um, mm -hmm. is unfortunately lost to the desert. Um, and he turned the Sankore Mosque. What did you say? I will find. I will find that palace. I would love if you found it, the legendary lost palace of Mansa Musa. That'd be a yeah. pretty. That'd be a pretty gangster thing to find. Yeah, hell yeah, dude. Indiana Jones status. <laughs> um, <laughs> And the Sankore Mosque, which we mentioned, uh, he he expands eventually into like a full full fledged university, um, which yeah. is maybe the first in this region, um, and it's staffed with you know globally renowned astronomers and philosophers and historians and religious scholars. Um, and so it's said that by the end of his reign, Sankore University, it had the largest collection of books since the destruction of the library at Alexandria. Um, yeah. So there were approximately a million manuscripts at Sankore, and it had a student capacity of 25,000. So this is huge. I mean, this is not like some little rinky-dink backwater place. He's got... No, this guy fucks. Yeah, he this guy fucks, fucks hard. He's got like... He's, <laughs> he's, he's completely lifting up this entire region. Um, and at this point, the Malian Empire, there are about 400 major cities... Um, and the Niger River Delta, yeah, yeah. which is the major river throwing through, flowing through the region, is like yeah. incredibly densely populated, um, like at no point before and really since. Um, and so now, unfortunately, you know, it's it's time for him to die. Um, we don't really know when Mansa Musa died officially, but we do have records of the reigns of his son, Mansa Magan, and then his older brother who ruled after his son, uh, Mansa Suleiman. Um, and based Musa's on those brother. dates, Musa's brother, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's assumed that Mansa died sometime in 1337. Um, <laughs> it's certain that when he, uh, when he died, he left a massively expanded political and social infrastructure behind him. Um, as I said at the start, uh, his empire, it's a purely African empire. It's not yeah. formed by outside conquerors. It's not formed by Arabs invading. Um, there is obviously like some Islamic influence here because they are Muslims, but... Um, it's 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 truly like uh, just a purely African cultural force. Um, yeah. It's really sad that we don't learn more about it. Um, he expanded literacy throughout the region. This becomes one of the most literate regions on planet Earth uh, at the yeah. time. Um, and he spreads, spreads Islam through the region. So by the end of his reign, Islam is absolutely the dominant religion. Um, yeah. And this, I'm sure there are people listening that are going to be like, why is that good? Because at least in the U.S., we've got this like really violently anti-Islam rhetoric that's constantly being hurled at us. But yeah. um, I think it's important to note that in 1337, the Islamic world is like the center of learning and scientific achievement and enlightenment on planet Earth. Yeah, um, and you know, this was like, so, so I, I laughed earlier because I thought 1337 was the year the Black Death arrived in Europe. That's 1347. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. But, um, close. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, like, this is right before, like, Christianity is about to go through. It's, like, absolutely, like, darkest time. Yeah, and these are yeah. people that are, like, fond of things that might have really helped, like bathing and medicine. <laughs> um, yeah, so science. Science. <laughs> um, and Europe is just, like, a bunch of dirty, like, pig farmers. 
And sheet milkers. And yeah. sheet milkers, a bunch of dirty <laughs> sheet milkers. And here we have in West Africa just like this glowing beacon of like beautiful, enlightened civilization and spirituality. Um, so the enduring stability of his empire is another testament to his ability to consolidate power um, and his campaign to bring peace and prosperity to the entire West African region. Um, a lot of this stuff that he built has been reclaimed by the desert. Um, one unfortunate side effect of the way that they built was mm-hmm. that they used a lot of um, earth and and natural um, building materials that weren't carved stone and things like that so over time things have eroded and sort of blown away and there isn't the same level of permanence to a lot of these structures like i said some of them you can still find the sankore mosque is still there but his palace is gone um but for a long time the idea of the lost city of timbuktu was this like goal for explorers to find up through like the 19th century um european explorers talked about timbuktu in the same way they would talk about like the Lost Eldorado. City of Atlantis or, like, uh, El Dorado or something yeah. like that. So, Yeah, now, I also think, too, um, I'm pretty certain that, like, the Sahara also, like, kind of, like, shifts. It's over a very long period, like, thousands it does. of years. But, you know, it kind of, like, shifts south, yeah. and then it'll shift back north. The Sahara is so currently really, expanding. Yeah, yeah. So, but, like, like, it moves back and forth over time. So places that are inhospitable now... Used to be hospitable and will be again. Right. Yeah. A thousand years ago, Gondahar <laughs> was saved. A thousand no, 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 years no. in the future, Gondahar was destroyed. Yeah, there, yeah. Or, yeah, a thousand, thousand years, years ago, like, Gondahar will be saved. Will a thousand saved, years yeah. in the future, Gondahar was destroyed. Yeah. If you guys haven't seen Gondahar... Um, Sylvain. <laughs> <laughs> if you guys haven't seen the, the... When is it from, like, 1987... Uh, yeah, it's Late in the 80s. 80s. Yeah, uh, Gondahar. Glenn Close is in it. I know that, and it's an animated yeah, and it's movie. It's by Rene Leloup, who did Fantastic Planet. Oh, is it? Yeah. Why did I not realize it was the same? We did because when we were looking for Fantastic Planet that time, oh. and we stumbled on Gondahar, and we were yes. just both stunned into silence. Yes, we were stunned. Yeah. Truly a, a revelatory experience. Yeah. Sylvain. <laughs> Sort of like the way that the Roman Empire, excuse me, sorry, I'm just really ripping into these seltzers. Yeah, bird uh, boy. They're just, they're turning me into a belch boy. Um, <laughs> the Mali Empire would eventually sort of shift into the Songhai Empire, um, which would endure into the 16th century. So this is like multiple centuries long uh, period of just like growth and um, local power and enlightenment. Um, and unfortunately, it would sort of be undermined by... Um, internal strife and then picked apart from outside by colonial powers, um, the slave trade, things like that. Um, And then systematically over the next couple centuries, everything that we know about Mansa Musa and his progenitors and his successors would sort of be diluted and for whatever reason kind of removed from the common historical discourse to the point where now, like, again, I don't remember when I heard of him. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. So it, it's it's a real shame, and I think it's it's a subject that's worth looking more into and giving more time to because I think too many people have the wrong idea about you know that entire part of the world. You know that they don't have they they somehow lack the you know and the same is is easy to say about um, the Americas. You know the indigenous yeah. peoples of the Americas that they lack the sort of history and the the culture and the great achievements that you know make whatever europe and asia so so preeminent and it's just not true you know there's just no evidence to to support that yeah and you know it was uh, around the time that i guess the songhai empire was falling there was uh, some pretty uh pretty not that chill shit going on in west africa from the um the european powers so super not chill (laughs) yeah some could say it was so not chill that it's still not chill today because of how not chill it was. Yeah. Um, yeah. So maybe, uh, maybe you know, a lot of that sort of falling by the wayside, that, uh, that knowledge and history was because, well, 
uh, maybe those people didn't want <laughs> anybody to learn about it. Yeah, man, it's 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 almost like there's been a systematic attempt to erase this <laughs> from the history books, uh, yeah. and and to totally like rob these people of their right to be seen as equals on the global stage. Almost. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's well, almost it like, like that. It was like, uh, I saw on Twitter, just like the cesspool of the internet, uh, last night or maybe like sometime yesterday where somebody posted a picture of all of the recorded battles in history yeah. and uh, as some defense of why the European Union was needed. And, you know, <laughs> I saw somebody say that the work recorded is doing all of the legwork. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and like, oh, wow, look at that. It was like the vast majority of the battles were in Europe and the Americas and right. mainly the United States and uh, some in like Asia and shit like that. It was like, yeah, dude, recording doing all of the legwork. <laughs> right. It's 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 funny to me because Eurocentric historians love establishing their own goalposts and then like completely shitting yeah. on anyone who doesn't meet those goalposts. And yeah. so that's why at the start of the episode I sort of was mentioning that um, West Africa has this long oral tradition. Um, a, but they have this like <laughs> long oral tradition, and they they just weren't writing down like ledgers and books in the same way that you know say the Romans were. And so yeah. just because we don't have this massive amount of just frivolous bullshit left behind. Because a lot of what we have from the Romans is like just letters they wrote to each other. Like it, I hope yeah. that we get to get together soon and 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 we can talk about politics and whatever like yeah or you know catalyst writing poems about face fucking people oh my god <laughs> you should absolutely do an episode on catalyst yeah that's neither yeah, here nor there but that's a great oh man um so anyway I, I i wish that there was more to say about mansa musa i wish that i had the amount of material to kind of work with to do um a multi-part episode like tiberius um but it's just a shame that you know for millions and millions of dumb reasons, we don't have the same kind of access to that material. Um, and so I hope that this stimulates you guys to go and buy a book or, or read about him or um, just dive into African history in general because I, you know, I plan to do a few more episodes on it. Um, and there's just so much to be gleaned, even with the limited access that we have to you know, written sources, written resources. Um, there's just a lot to talk about. And I think yeah. Mansa Musa is like a really logical starting off point because he represents a sort of high point in in human achievement, you know, not just African achievement, but human achievement on a global scale um, that I think is really worth acknowledging and really worth worth talking about. And some of the episodes that, you know, we're going to be doing later um, are going to kind of be more in keeping with the left on red theme, which is like not so positive and awesome. Um, yeah. You know, we're gonna talk about like Leopold II of Belgium and like why yeah. he's like one of the worst racist pieces of shit on planet Earth for yeah, the atrocities the, he like, committed in the Congo. Cool things. Yeah, that's in, some of yeah. that super not chill racist yeah. European stuff that we're talking about. So yeah. um, I really wanted to kick it off with just like you know an absolute like. Yeah. pillar of human achievement like Mansa Musa and just be like, hey, look, Africa fucking rules and yeah. African history fucking rules. And, and uh, uh, yeah, and uh, I will also be doing many episodes <laughs> and many episodes coming up soon about ways that the United States, even in recent history, has contributed to some of those very not chill things that have been going Super on. Super not chill. Not just in the colonial world, but in the post-colonial world. Right, which... Spoiler alert, that's us now. Yeah. We're that. So. <laughs> Shit, that still happened, I don't know, two years ago yeah. in a specific South American country named Bolivia. Oh, man. Two years ago. Two years ago. <laughs> All right, yeah, so, I mean, that's... Fuck, that's my, that's my episode <laughs> on Mansa Musa. Yeah. Uh, I hope you all liked it. Um, definitely wanted to do a bit of a shorter one this week because we've been we've, we've been, been cranking out the long boys lately. Yeah. But uh, I hope you guys liked it. And um, as always, uh, you can follow us on Twitter. We'll have the links to that in the episode description. Um, if you have any ideas for episodes, any questions, you can always reach out to us. We would love to hear from you. And uh, we'll be back next week with uh, another wonderful edition of Left on Red. Yep. Uh, and be sure to give us a five-star rating on 
iTunes. Hell yeah. Don't listen to us on Stitcher. No, I'm just kidding. You can listen to us on anything yeah, you want. Yeah, listen to us on whatever you want. Literally make whatever sure you want. sure you give us those five star on Apple Podcasts. Yeah. Or, I mean, if you're on something else, you can give us a follow. Whatever. Anything that you can do to kind yeah. of show us support. Um, we yeah, massively appreciate Twitter, it. Facebook. All that shit. Yeah. Yeah. Any of it. I think we technically have an Instagram. We've just never We do, it. yeah. I ha- it exists. It's just not currently in use because... We're n- yeah. I don't like social media. I got to get better at it, though. Yeah. Yeah. All right. All well, right, well. <laughs> thanks for listening, and uh, we'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye. Peace. said today's subject is monster the uh, i'm sorry Ugh. <laughs> i feel like i have to burp this is yeah. i'm gonna cut also uh, yeah if you're gonna cut this what, what's up with the uh random um highlights <laughs> there we oh go wow <laughs> dude that was trapped that was trapped under ice um <laughs>